Hello. Welcome to the Journey On Podcast. I'm Dave Smelser. So when someone like me explores the sort of journeying, contemplative, mystical spirituality that we talk about here, one occasionally gets into some pretty deep water. The modern mystics we talk about, like Desmond Tutu and the Dalai Lama and Thich Nhat Hanh and Oprah favorites, and even the monk Thomas Merton, whom we'll be mentioning on this podcast, they tend to be a pretty friendly and accessible bunch. But if you look back, particularly into my own Christian tradition, I mean, it can take you into some provocative, curious places that are a bit deeper than at least I am, which I guess is good news, right? There's lots to learn. So there are obvious sources for these deep waters, like the great German Christian mystic Meister Eckhart. But even mainstream figures like Augustine and the so-called church fathers of the early centuries after Jesus will also take you there. So I wondered if some of you would be interested in an occasional look into that world, particularly with these mainstream biggies, and that's what we will be up to today. So while the big insight here, which just asked my wife, I've been totally into these last few weeks, might be deeper than I am, I will be doing my best to make it as accessible as possible with takes from pop culture and an attempt to break it down into practical consequences and the occasional story. It's possible that all I will do with these attempts to make this deep wisdom accessible will be to trivialize it. But, you know, we have to start somewhere. So all that said, on this podcast, we'll begin with big thoughts about how we know who we actually are, all from a Netflix show. And I think we can agree that Netflix shows know everything worth knowing. Then we'll go on to talk about this big thought from such major figures as Athanasius and Augustine and our friend Thomas Merton and many others about what they suggest is going on as we grow in a contemplative mystical relationship with God. It's something they call the strange name deification or sometimes divinization. These are big ideas, believe you me. We will look at a flurry of scriptures that, now that we think about it, seem to be making the same point that these mystics are making. We'll consider whether mystical experiential faith is both the most basic way to connect with God, the most common way, say, for children to experience God, and is also the heart of our richest life journeys. I'll tell a bit about my experience along those lines. I will detail 10 benefits that we might experience as we increasingly find ourselves, as it were, mystically united with God. I'll talk about how two very basic practices, noticing our breathing and with God practicing a kind of mindfulness, can take us a long way towards this deification that Augustine and others talk about. And I will close with a few final thoughts about this paradox that we're promised to find our true selves, a solid sense of our identity, only as we unite with God in this way. It's a paradox. Before we get started, let me mention that if you enjoy Journey On, I think you would love a vibrant weekly online group I lead on these things for folks from all over the country and beyond. We actually have four times, Sundays at 6.30 Eastern Time, Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, Wednesdays at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, or Thursdays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. You can learn more by emailing connect at journey-on.net, connect at journey-on.net. All right, kick us off, Ryan Hood, for What the Mystics Know. Over the holidays, I've been reunited with the work of this gothic filmmaker, Mike Flanagan, who's been the showrunner of two Netflix series loosely based on classic scary stories. The Haunting of Hill House, loosely adapted from the Shirley Jackson novel, and The Haunting of Bly Manor, loosely adapted from the work of Henry James, especially The Turn of the Screw. I think they're both dynamite. They're the sorts of stories that stay with you. And my college student daughter and I watched them together and have spent some time processing them. The latest, The Haunting of Bly Manor, has lots to do with identity. Are there ways we lose ourselves throughout our lives? If that happens, who exactly is the us that we lose? 
what does it mean to fall in love when, best case scenario, one party will leave the other abandoned after they die? What does that mean about our identity along the way? The series gives attention to a quote popularized by David Foster Wallace that, quote, every love story is a ghost story because one lover will outlive the other and then we're left with memories, but memories fade and sometimes are inaccurate. So who was that person of fading memory who was so important to us? It shares some themes you probably picked up with the Pixar movie Coco along those lines. One of the characters, the cook Owen, has been a caretaker for his mother who has dementia, which incidentally is a theme Netflix has been exploring this year in movies like Dick Johnson is Dead and Relic and The Father, proving that Netflix is in fact the font of all wisdom. And then his mother, who has dementia, dies. As he's reflecting on what that means to lose someone who seems as well to have been losing themselves, he loosely quotes the Trappist monk and mystic Thomas Merton, saying, once we get past consciousness and identity and all the things that occupy the front of our brains, you reach a transcendence, an infinitely abundant source or what have you. So if you take someone with dementia, for instance, and their consciousness is wearing away every day, right? You see underneath it. He says that. That was one of the moments of the series I came back to quite a bit, because that's a big thought. I have a relative who was in dementia before he died, and the idea that he might simultaneously have been losing himself on the surface, while also reaching some kind of transcendence or infinitely abundant source, that just sort of turns my head around. The great Christian mystics have a mind-bending idea that ties in with a haunting of Bly Manor about what happens when we get behind our consciousness, the swirl of our thoughts and opinions and personality, which is such a central spiritual act for these Christian mystics, getting behind that consciousness. So Athanasius, who gave us the heart of the Nicene Creed, a biggie formulation for Christians, so he's regarded as like Mr. Orthodox Christian, he says curious stuff like, God became man so that man might become God. Kind of a curious thing for a modern ear to hear. Gregory Nanzianzen, one of the so-called church fathers, who has the rare distinctive of being sainted both by the Catholic and Orthodox churches, so again, a biggie, he wrote, he took our flesh and our flesh became God since it is united with God and forms a single entity with him, was Jesus. He took our flesh and our flesh became God since it is united with God and forms a single entity with Jesus. The early church writers had a name for this idea, which can sound freaky to modern ears. They called this thing, which perhaps is the goal of being alive, as we'll talk about, they called it deification. It's the idea that God has put right at the center of our inner self, God, that one aspect of Jesus' incarnation was that he now could come inside of us for real, and that as we get past our superficial self, as Owen in The Haunting of Hill House was talking about in regards to his mother— We tap into the actual God in us, the actual God, not like a God-like thing, but the literal, the actual God who's in us, and we sort of merge with God. And so because of that, we take on immortality and other good things. For the mystics, this comes as a discovery of what's already there rather than as a result of something heroic. Augustine, the most influential Christian theologian ever, who thought of salvation as one and the same as deification, said, It is not that we never knew God, but that we have forgotten him. Back to our friend Thomas Merton. He said, in prayer, we discover what we already have. You start from where you are and you deepen what you already have and you realize you are already there. We already have everything, but we don't know it and we don't experience it. So for Merton, the key word seems to be already. The mystics point to a bunch of scriptures in which they suggest we've missed the point, which goes this direction. So they see John's gospel as shot through with this. In chapter 14, Jesus says, on that day, you, the reader, presumably, you, the disciple, will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me and I in you. 
we're all part of the same thing, the same thing. thing. We're united. Deification. In chapter 17, Jesus says to God, may they, his followers, all be one, just as, Father, you are in me and I am in you so that they may also be in us. You can imagine the deification crowd grooves on that scripture. St. Paul says in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ, and yet I am alive. Yet it is no longer I, it's Christ living in me. To paraphrase Ghostbusters, there seems to be no more Paul, only Christ. Genesis 28, 16 has Jacob saying, God, you were here all along and I never knew it. Psalm 95 says that every day we get an invitation from the Spirit of God to relax into this center that's being talked about here, to, quote, enter God's rest, where presumably we unite with God. But that every day we're overwhelmingly tempted to, as the author of the psalm says, harden our hearts and to cast our faith with the overwhelming reactivity that mostly controls us. The Franciscan mystic Richard Rohr, I stole the title of this episode from one of his books, he argues that, quote, common religion seeks private perfection, but the mystics seek and enjoy the foundation itself, which is divine union, this same idea. Two episodes back, I quoted a series of famous spiritual teachers, C.S. Lewis and the Dalai Lama and the writers of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, among others, about the point of being alive as being to learn how to be happy. But these many mystics would modify that by looking at what they regard as the deeper take on a similar point. They'd say that we find our purpose as we discover this divine union that's already waiting for us in us. So Teresa of Avila said, you find God in yourself, and then you find yourself in God. I was talking with a friend recently, and she was making the point that her entry into faith involves some mysticism, some direct experience of God. And we wondered if mysticism of this sort, rather than being something for super advanced gurus or something, was actually the most common entryway into life with God. So this friend has worked with kids over the years and feels like kids are natural mystics, that the innate mysticism gets sanded away by getting older. All the wisdom of these great spiritual teachers on this point is their attempt to lead us back to what we've lost and then to help us go forward in God having reclaimed it. And that was my experience as well. As you might have run across if you've followed me in any way over the years, I was an atheist debater in my high school and early college crowd. But one day I began to wonder if I was on the wrong path in that stuff, so I prayed for the first time since I'd been very small. I suppose it's that kids are natural mystics point showing itself again. And I had a particularly wacky night. I mean, I had a minor car accident where I ran into a giant cross, which you've got to admit doesn't happen every day. And by the end of the evening, I had a strong sense that God or the universe or something was speaking to me quite directly, if briefly. Mysticism. So in my case, I feel like I've been on a quest ever since to figure out what that stuff is supposed to mean. How does one respond to such things? What's at the heart of direct transcendent experience for those small children, very much included, who get a window in on that, however fleetingly? So let's say that Athanasius and Gregory Nanzianzen and Augustine and Thomas Merton and Richard Rohr and John the Gospel Writer and St. Paul and many others are all onto something in their answer to my question of what's the point of mystical experiences, and that they would all answer something like, to be united with God for real. Or maybe, as they use fancy words that might feel vaguely eerie, like deification or divinization, another word they use for that same thing. What if that's the point, that sort of union? If so, what might we get out of that? If we get united that way, what are we going to like about it? And presuming whatever we might get out of what that, uh, that would be would be pleasing to us, how exactly would we go about getting those things? 
I've been totally into those questions recently, but nonetheless, my reach might well exceed my grasp. Still, it's been fun nonetheless to be on the scent. So those disclaimers set. If this stuff is to some degree what the mystics know, as I've titled this podcast, what are a few implications? So what, for instance, might we gain if we were to experience more direct union with God who is already in us as we get still? Well, in principle, I think it would help us relax. Again, as Merton and Augustine are eager to encourage us towards, we're just relaxing into something that's already there. Remember Psalm 95's encouragement that we need to enter God's rest every day and that that's the whole ballgame. I suppose in principle, this would give us bone-deep perspective on the things that ordinarily freak us out or bug us. That was something I was really looking for in those early days as I was looking for God. It would help us feel connected to God and our world rather than constantly feeling like we're figuring everything out on the fly. And that I also was looking for when I left atheism all those years back. That's the benefit I was hoping for, to not feel like my life was one big improvisation. In principle, it would increase our trust in God for our future, which would empower us all the more to be alive right now. It would help us to take action more quickly and decisively on things that we should act on rather than being lost in dithering, which is a big benefit of living out of God who is in our center, right? We'd have God's wisdom and clarity working through us. I suppose with this, we would experience more hope. Richard Rohr says that hope and divine union are the same thing. Perhaps we'd be more connected to our innate joy, another theological virtue, by way of the sort of trust and hope. In the spirit, maybe we'll get more grounded in the actual, which seems helpful. So Aristotle says that contemplation, so connected with the mysticism we're talking about today, is, he says, the activity of seeing and understanding and savoring the world as it is. Contemplation, just noticing what is actual and savoring that. So maybe we'll find joy right now rather than some fantasized about, quote, better reality. This is kind of, well, I suppose mystical, but the early church fathers were heavily into the idea that this thing, this union, is what connects you to that part of you, maybe your true self that feels and in fact is immortal. Let me have an aside here for what it's worth. I was talking about this point, this immortality point with my wife, Grace, and asking her how much she identified with fear of death as the big problem we're all trying to overcome, which does seem true to me of many of the church fathers. that They're very identified with that. I said I actually didn't really identify with that myself, that I recognize that I'll die someday, and for the moment, I seem to have come to terms with that seemingly just fine, but that I had other existential questions that definitely kept me looking into the stuff apart from fear of death. Grace wondered if the church fathers just saw death so much more around them than I do, among children, spouses, and friends in a way that very few of us do, right? Such that they didn't have the luxury to put what death means out of their mind, the way many people in the modern world are fortunate to be able to do. Now, maybe we're just a little bit less fortunate during this pandemic in that respect. Okay, but off my tangent. In any case, maybe a benefit experience in this kind of deification is that you get to live more and more out of the immortal God within you, the part of you which will never die, and that at least seems good. I think this also suggests that you and I can keep growing forever, right into the next life. So along these lines, we get this said about the church father Clement of Alexandria by the British scholar Bishop Callistus Ware. He writes, For Clement, the process of deification is unending. God is infinite, and so there are no limits to our journey into God. Salvation is never complete. Deification goes on, and the journey continues even into the age to come. There's infinite progress. As Tolkien says, the road goes ever on. All right, so if those are benefits we might get from this sort of union, I'm just spitballing, how do we move towards this all-important union with God, who we're told is already waiting for us in the stillness of our true self? 
Well, let's look at it from the perspective of two practices we talk about here frequently, maybe with a little nuance to both. The first is getting curious about our breath, and the second is practicing godly mindfulness. So alongside Augustine and Merton and the Church Fathers, as I've immersed myself into pondering this deification stuff, I've been even more attentive to my breath during my times for spiritual practice each day. So if you've been listening to Journey On, you might recall that the mystics and contemplatives encourage us to take a whopping 20 minutes each session, maybe even twice a day, for this practice. They encourage us to start by noticing our breath, by getting still, focusing on our breath is like something we can focus on, focus our attention on. And then as thoughts kind of cause us to drift away, when we notice we drifted away, just gently let the thoughts go and return to our breath is the basic practice. There's a ton of nuance you can add to that, some of which I'll add here. So if that's the, that's the beginning, it's following your breath in that way. I wonder for the purposes here, the deification, divinization crowd, they would suggest that as we go deeper into this practice, we realize that noticing breathing for just a few beats longer than perhaps we've done thus far seems to have some benefits on its own terms. So, for instance, back in the first books of the Bible, the ancient Israelites asked to know the name of the God they worshipped, and they were told it was I Am, which seems to punt us back to looking for God in reality, the reality of what actually is right now, not in some idealized future. That's very Aristotle. Scholars tell us, though, that the original word for I Am here, pronounced Yahweh, was actually an attempt to capture the sound of breathing. Who knew? Yah as the in-breath and Ve as the out-breath as if God was the first word we said as a newborn, as we breathe, we're saying the name of God. And it's also the last word we said before we died, as if breathing invoked the name of God who created us and indwells us, which seems like a hint at something. It seems like a big idea that as we breathe consciously, we're calling on God, we're praying by definition. So I've taken the counsel of some of these mystics recently to take some time in my spiritual practice as a way of connecting with the God who I just need to relax into, to get curious about what breathing is like. I follow my in-breath through my nostrils and then keep attention on it a bit more through my sinuses and then through the back of my throat and expanding into my lungs. And then I pay attention to what it feels like to, on my out-breath, expel it. It's now warmed back through my throat and sinuses and nose and into the world. Is there a difference between the breath I take in and the breath I send back out into the world? That sort of stuff. This breath stuff gets a lot of attention in the Bible. You'll recall that God brings people to life by breathing into us. The Holy Spirit is called the breath of God. When the post-resurrection Jesus says, receive the Holy Spirit, he breathed on them as a way of doing that. In any case, many mystics suggest that this can be the start of the way that as Owen in The Haunting of Blind Manor quoted Thomas Merton as suggesting, we can, quote, get past consciousness and identity and all the things that occupy the front of our brains in order to reach a transcendence, an infinitely abundant source, Sounds quite a bit like what the church fathers called deification. Now, having done that, we can notice but not get swept away by the thoughts and emotions we see there as we do this breathing thing. That's classic mindfulness. As we're just being still, we notice, oh, I see emotions, I see thoughts in my horizon, and maybe throughout your day you'll notice that. What does it mean to notice them but not be swept away by them? Mindfulness. Now, perhaps that sort of mindfulness helps us unite with God as we find the kind of trust we're looking for about things which otherwise intimidate us. So maybe we get mindful of hard things. We notice anxieties. We notice miseries. But as we get still, we've been working with our breath a bit, and we're just noticing these things in that space with God. We're not indulging them just yet. 
And what we discover that is, as we just say, oh, there it is. It's like a cloud wafting over an otherwise blue sky. And that cloud is something that feels scary or threatening or, or bad. But we're just noticing it. We're not in it. Um, we note that these concerns turn out to just sort of drift off like a cloud mostly. But even if they don't, either way, we find a kind of stillness and trust that these mystics would say comes from living out of God. Which, in an aside, that's a change in language that we encounter from first-level spirituality to here. So maybe in earlier spirituality, we might be encouraged to become like God, as if God is over there and we're over here and we should take God as a role model. Here you find people using language along the lines of encouraging us to, quote, live out of God or some such thing. So I might find, as I get still behind some negative emotions, say some sort of unhappiness, that as I get mindful of it like a passing cloud, that when I check in with God, God might say to me something like, well, I hope it keeps wafting by. But if it doesn't, can you still just let it be there in the sky and go on with your day and not worry about it? And I will discover on those terms, I absolutely can. And maybe it will linger just a bit and maybe it won't, but either way, I discover I'm fine. I'm on these terms living out of my center just great and finding a different kind of trust that when I'm living where God is, as it were, I'm good, that God's on the job. So let's recap. The idea these mystics offer us is that who we think we are turns out to be less substantial than we previously thought. I was talking with someone who's divorced and who'd taken so much identity in being the spouse in that couple. So now who are they? The idea the mystics give us is that there's actually a real us that we might not know, but it's there and it's behind. It's in that still space where God lives. And that real us is solid and powerful, but that it's all bound up in uniting with God, just as Jesus talked about in John's gospel and the church fathers talk about as well. As Augustine famously said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. All right, that's it for this week's Journey on Podcast. I hope you've liked deep swimming with the mystics. I will see you soon.